Welcome and thank you for joining today's events hosted by the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. It's Wednesday, October 11th, and we are honored to host U.S. Southcom Commander General Laura Richardson. Our discussion today will focus on the U.S. response to China's increased activity in Latin America and the Caribbean. I'm Elizabeth Robbins, FDD's Vice President of Communications. We're pleased to have you here for this conversation, some in person, others tuning in live. So let's set the stage. The People's Republic of China is undertaking a massive military buildup and wielding its growing might to expand its military access abroad. The growing threats from China's buildup in the Indo-Pacific have expanded well into our hemisphere and U.S. Southern Command's area of responsibility. Southcom is one of the Pentagon's six geographic commands and is responsible for U.S. contingency planning, operations, and security cooperations in Central America, South America, and the Caribbean. General Richardson brings to her command more than 37 years of service as a leader, soldier, aviator, and combat veteran who has commanded from the company to theater army level. A few highlights of her career to date include command of an assault helicopter battalion in Iraq, service as military aide to the vice president, and leadership of the army component of U.S. Northern Command. Moderating today's discussion is my friend and colleague, Bradley Bowman, the Senior Director of FDD's Center on Military and Political Power. Before coming to FDD, he served as National Security Advisor to members of the Senate Armed Services and Foreign Relations Committees, nearly nine years in the U.S. Senate, including six years as the top defense advisor to Senator Kelly Ayotte. He also served as National Security Advisor to Senator Todd Young and worked as a Council on Foreign Relations International Affairs Fellow on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Previously, Brad served on active duty as an Army officer, Black Hawk pilot, and assistant professor at West Point. Before we dive in, just a few words about FDD. For more than 20 years, FDD has operated as a fiercely independent, nonpartisan research institute exclusively focused on national security and foreign policy. As a point of pride and principle, we do not accept foreign government funding. For more on our work, Please visit our website, fdd.org, and follow us on Twitter, at FDD, or shall we say X. With that, I welcome what will be a fascinating discussion on a timely topic. Over to you, Bradley. All right. Thank you, Beth. Thank you so much for the introduction. General Richardson, welcome back to FDD. It's so great to have you here. It seems like uh, just yesterday in December when we were doing the podcast, time flies, and then just yesterday when I think we first met when you were a colonel leading Army uh, Senate liaison. So it's uh, a, lot of, a, lot of, a lot of water under the bridge since then, but it's so good to have you back. Thank, Thank you, you for very making much, time. Really appreciate it. Um, before we move on to the topic at hand, I just want to make a, uh, a quick a comment about the horrific terror attack on Israel that's been consuming a lot of attention of folks here in recent days. Our thoughts are with the victims of that barbaric act perpetrated by Hamas. Um, for those who are here or watching online, I just want to flag that FDD has been publishing a lot of analysis on what happened, the strategic context, and how the U.S. should respond. In fact, since Saturday, uh, just Saturday, we've published more than 26 pieces of analysis just since Saturday on, the, on what's happened with Hamas in the strategic context. So if you're interested, I encourage you to go to line, and that doesn't include uh, numerous podcasts. But uh, that's not our topic today. Our topic today is... Um, is Latin America's China problem. And, and there's no one better here to talk about that, I think, than you. And so w welcome again. And with your permission, I'd love to just jump right in. So uh, for, um, for Americans busy with their lives who, who aren't as focused on, on, on the region as you are, can you 
Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on why you think uh, Americans should care about what happens in, in U.S. Southern Command's area of responsibility. Well, thank you for that, Brad, and thank you for having me here today to be able to speak about this very important region. And um, certainly when we, when we talk about uh, why should America be, um, you know, concerned about what's happening in our region, and, uh, and uh, you say America because we're part of the Americas. Yeah and the Western Hemisphere. This is our, this is our homeland. Uh, so we live in America, but we are part of the Americas. And um, I think the, just the proximity, proximity matters. And, uh, and uh, I like to refer to the Western Hemisphere uh, as uh, our neighborhood. I know that doesn't resonate with everybody, but when I, when I talk about neighbors, um, as part of the Americas, we are all neighbors and neighbors take care of each other. And we have 28 like-minded democracies in this hemisphere, and we work together on a daily basis. And we have uh, a lot of strategic competition going on in the region, but you know, the, uh, the, all of the um, things that are, make this uh, hemisphere very rich, uh, just family ties, um, the remittances that, that come back to countries from all of the family ties, our culture, uh, again, uh, it, we are neighbors. We have a history with our neighbors. Um, we have uh, fought together in war with Colombia uh, and also with Brazil. And so we have a very dip, uh, deep, rich culture with this hemisphere. And so uh, as I travel around and meet with leaders, and just see the concern in their eyes from our 28 like-minded democracies as we work. Uh, you know, you acknowledge the, the, the horrific attacks, and my condolences go out as well to those who lost their, lost their lives and the families that are, that are reeling from this. Uh, and we still have uh, people that are in danger. Um, but rich in resources. And so what I worry about the, is the extraction of research uh, from these, uh, from these um, reserves of heavy crude oil, uh, light sweet crude that was discovered off the shores of Guyana, uh, the largest growing economy, 25% GDP is anticipated for Guyana over the next five years. Um, you have 60% of the world's lithium in the lithium triangle, Argentina, Bolivia, Chile. Uh, and copper, gold. You have a lot of uh, transnational criminal organization activity. Uh, they've become more powerful. They've diversified their portfolio. It's not just countering or, or um, uh, drug trafficking now. It's also humans, as we see, with this irregular migration that's happening in the hemisphere. Uh, illegal mining, gold, copper. Uh, illegal logging, deforestation, the illegal, unregulated, unreported fishing, uh, the money laundering in the region, uh, cleaning the money to be able to support that over $300 billion annual revenue business. We have the Amazon. Uh, we just had the, Amazon, uh, the Amazonian leaders uh, meet together a couple of months ago. And uh, the eight leaders that have the Amazon in their countries very concerned about the biodiversity very concerned about the illegal logging, the deforestation uh, that's happening. It's known as the lungs of the world. Uh, the Amazon isn't just a place where we talk about it 
you know, I've actually been to the Amazon, I can say that now, um, having been in this job and seeing how important it is. Uh, but when you think of lungs of the world and what the Amazon does for our globe, uh, the damage that's being done to it, uh, it was important enough for those presidents, all eight of them, to get together a couple of months ago in Brazil to talk about and discuss uh, a way forward on how to protect the Amazon. So the resources are so rich. And when you look at the strategic competition globally, but then also in this hemisphere, uh, you want to make sure that, that uh, things aren't uh, adversaries and strategic competitors aren't trying to go there for nefarious reasons to extract. Uh, this hemisphere has the potential to feed and fuel the world. I say that again, to feed and fuel the world. We used to talk about that in 2014 timeframe. And we haven't really talked about it since. But when you talk about the, the agriculture and the fisheries, by 2028, Latin America will have 25% of the agriculture and uh, fisheries in the globe. You know, who knew? So we should be talking about the potential of this hemisphere, uh, not the insecurity and the instability that can take it another direction. Thank you. No, a great overview and, and challenges and opportunities, and, and I think that's important that you highlighted. I do want to drill down in, on what the People's Republic of China is doing in a number of areas. You've said that, the, uh, quoting you, the PRC is investing in critical infrastructure, including deep water ports, which, uh, which among other things, can have a potential dual use for malign commercial and military activities. Would love to hear just a little bit more about what you see the PRC doing in terms of deep water ports in, in the area. Yeah, so the, uh, uh, in the over 17 countries, uh, deep water ports, it's all the critical infrastructure, and that's what really is concerning to me. So largest military buildup uh, since World War II of any country in, in the globe, uh, military, the military buildup, conventional and nuclear, uh, and, um, and then you look at the what looks to be investment through the Belt and Road Initiative, 22 of 31 countries in the hemisphere have signed on to the Belt and Road Initiative. And I would say that uh, for, uh, really for the countries, they're, they're really looking for economic assistance. And you have, uh, as I mentioned before, 28 like-minded democracies. Democracies trying to deliver for their people. And we have got to show that democracies do deliver for people. And our leaders in the hemisphere are generally in, in one term, in the seat one term for four years. They're working on a stopwatch, not a calendar. And they're trying to make things happen very, very quickly in the midst of insecurity and instability. And I would say with COVID, you know, the, uh, the, the, uh, the economics the, uh, for these countries with COVID, a lot of them rely on tourism. And I would say during COVID, we all know what happened during COVID, there wasn't a lot of tourism going on. And so these countries are still reeling from the impact of COVID. We are as well in the United States. We see how we're, we've been impacted too. And so how do we economically help these countries? I go back to the potential of feeding and fueling the world. We want our neighbors around our, us. We want our neighbors, all of the Americas, to be secure. We want them to be uh, economically uh, able to support themselves. We want them to be able to have the security to be able to defend themselves, right? The stronger that they are, the stronger we all are in the Americas. And so the ability to help with that. Um, so it, in my mind, it, it starts with the economics, as I've been in this uh, position for about two years. 
and traveled around, meet with leaders, see the security challenges, see it firsthand, talk to leaders, look them in the eye and understand. I have to understand their challenges through their lens, not how I see it, it's how they see it. And then how do we support that? So I've been working you know, really hard to you know, not just pressurize our, uh, our abilities and uh, from the military perspective, uh, you know, and military equipment and helping their militaries and their public security forces. Number one, that's, you know, how we build a strong deterrence is through, you know, the strength of all of us together. And I call that team democracy. Uh, Secretary Austin uses integrated deterrence, you know, as a term that we uh, have in our national defense strategy. But I, when I talk to my partners uh, and our partner nations, I use the term team democracy because that's really what it is. It's an integrated team that works together for like-minded goals to promote democracy and the security of the region. And so. Um, no, thank you. Now, and and I've, I've, heard, I've seen you discuss elsewhere what some Chinese-linked entities are doing in and around the Panama Canal. So speaking of maritime infrastructure, that, that strikes me as somewhat concerning. But I want to pivot to um, some space issues, which I know have been an area of focus for you. Uh, Senate Armed Services Committee Chairman uh, Jack Reed said in March that the PRC has set up, quote, a network of space tracking stations in your region, which are probably doing more than space tracking. And my colleague Craig Singleton has published a, uh, uh, a visual that I highly recommend folks look at that details China's efforts to establish military bases around the world. And in that, he highlighted uh, the fact that Argentina signed a secretive 50-year agreement a few years back. Uh, that is managed by the China Satellite Launch and Tracking Control General Organization, which reports to the PLA Strategic Forces, um, based on our research with deference to you. I would love to hear kind of your assessment of what you think Beijing's up to in the space domain in, in, in your area of responsibility. Yeah, so the, as we talked in, in the last question, yeah. just about just all the critical infrastructure. So you mentioned the deep water ports, yeah. space, most space infrastructure. So I'm one of six geographic combatant commands and we have the most PRC enabling space infrastructure in this hemisphere, which is, that's uh, number one, that's a concern for me. Obviously, I go back to the largest military buildup, uh, conventional military, conventional nuclear forces for the PRC since World War II. But again, the, the, what I worry about is the, the uh, looks to be uh, as part of the Belt and Road Initiative and then uh, all of the investment, it looks to be investment uh, in the critical infrastructure, uh, but then being able to use it for dual use. So it looks to be these are state-owned enterprises controlled by the government, a communist government, by the way, uh, doesn't respect the human rights of their own people, and they won't respect the rights, human rights of the countries that they're working with. And so um, uh, in Argentina, out of the PRC has three deep space stations. Two are in mainland China. The other one is in Nuken, Argentina. 50-year lease, as you said. Um, they don't have daily access to that facility, the Argentines. And so that, that's uh, when, you, when you look at the space-enabling infrastructure, uh, the telemetry and tracking, what we call TTNC sites, uh, the SOCI sites, which are the space objects uh, surveillance sites, tracking of their uh, satellites for the PRC, but then also the ability to track U.S. satellites, uh, partner nation satellites as well, and possibly be used for targeting of those uh, satellites eventually. So, um, 
that's a concern. That is. Um, you know, you've, you've been talking about this for a while, and, and some of these installations have been there for a few years. You've traveled extensively throughout the region and met with who knows how many leaders. When you, when you raise these concerns about um, uh, PRC activities where there's clearly a, either currently a military component or potentially a military component, and express our concerns, what kind of responses are you getting? Do they understand that China is often leading with what seems like a civil or commercial guise, but behind it there's real military equities? Do they, do they get that? And, and what kind of responses are you getting from the leaders there? I think the, um, uh, thank you for that question. I think the uh, eyes wide open that uh, as uh, we go along and we see a history, Latin America isn't the first, uh, Latin America and the Caribbean aren't the first to have uh, Belt and Road Initiative and Chinese projects and things like that. We've seen that across the globe. Yeah. And, um, uh, but I think what we have seen is now a track, rec a track record by the PRC that is not uh, with the projects, uh, design flaws, cost overruns, of course the debt traps. Yes. Now leaders, um, as one uh, president told me from the region, former president, you know, he said the, when you need a rope and someone throws you the rope, yeah. uh, you don't necessarily look to who's throwing you the rope right. uh, and ask questions yeah. later. Yeah. Uh, and so again, uh, the security challenges are here and now, and we've got to be able to deliver, help help our 28 like-minded democracies counter all of the insecurity and stability that is happening from the transnational criminal organizations. I look at them as plowing the ground and creating that insecurity and instability, which then allows the PRC to come in with the Belt and Road Initiative or with, with projects. We have four other countries that aren't signatories on the BRI, but that do have projects uh, by the PRC that are happening in their, in their countries because they need to show progress. Yes. And so uh, in terms of you know, trying to bring Team USA together, uh, I think that the, the PRC, uh, through the Belt and Road Initiative, bring their instruments of national power. They're able to do this through that guise. Uh, that economic guise, which looks, um, you know, to help on the, uh, on the economic side of the house, which our countries desperately need. Uh, but then um, when you get into these cost, pro you know, the projects, the cost overruns, the design flaws, some have ended up in environmental hazards. The dam as well. That's right, yeah. uh, in Ecuador. And we've been able to uh, bring the Corps of Engineers in to be able to help fix that project. Uh, but leaders are more wide open. They say it's only uh, for economics. It's only on our, not on our defense side. Right. It's on the domestic right. side. We're keeping, right. you know. I've heard that uh, around as I, right? I look at, you know, Europe and even Middle East and, and other regions. It's like, oh, it's just, it's just commercial. It's just civilians. Well, have you read the PRC's military civil fusion doctrine? It's an explicit doctrine by which they're telling us what they're doing. They're leading right. with a commercial front for the purpose of creating national champion Chinese companies to put our companies out of business and siphon technology to the People's Liberation Army, which will be used against U.S. and other forces in the Taiwan Strait. Right. So, I mean, it's quite explicit. So, I mean, it's, we, <laughs> when in doubt, just read, read what they're saying, I would say. <laughs> anyway, but, uh, so as we do that, yeah. so how do we do the same thing with Team USA and Team Democracy? How do we bring the instruments of national power to Team USA in a coherent fashion that, uh, that saturates? We're already doing so many things. When you talk about the economic front, we have so many U.S. companies that are already working in, in the hemisphere. They're on the ground. They hire local workers. 
The Chinese don't do that with Belt and Road Initiative. I mean, number one, you don't even, when I say extract, when you don't hire local workers to work on your projects and you bring in your own folks, outsourcing your own, uh, yeah. you know, uh, 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 problem with uh, employing people, your unemployment problem, um, number one, I mean, just look there. Uh, but the, we've got to bring that. Dipl I use the simple term dime, diplomats, informational, military, and economics your instruments of national power. We already have a very good working relationship with all of our Team USA embassies in the region. I host an annual chief emission conference. I have a former ambassador that is uh, on my staff. She's a civilian deputy of the commander. We've had that for over a decade, uh, having a civilian deputy. We talk uh, almost daily with our ambassadors in the region. So we have that informational, but, but I, will, I will put a plug in that we have close to 50 ambassadors that still need to be confirmed. Right, right. speaking of the Senate. Globally, yeah. not in the hemisphere, I have yeah. about half a dozen yeah. that still need that, right? But that's a, that continues to happen. And, and that matters when someone's a confirmed ambassador coming that's right. with that title, on that matters, in the, right, in these engagements. Your it? number one diplomat has to be on the seat. That's your ground game. Yeah. That's your ground game in, in our countries. And, uh, and we can't have gaps of years. I've had gaps of years of U.S. ambassadors in the seat, and you can tell what countries that we have uh, ceded ground to our strategic competitors because our number one diplomat hasn't been in the seat. So I would just say that over many years, that's the first holds that take place. And so I would say that, that uh, that's blocking our own field goals from Team USA, and we need to do better. It's a national security issue. Um, uh, informational, uh, the uh, information domain, I say we're in conflict in the information domain. In Latin America, we have over 31 million followers with Sputnik Mundo, Russia Today, Espanol, and Telesur. They don't, uh, they aren't, uh, they don't run justification or verification journalism. Uh, they spread uh, disinformation. It undermines democracies across the hemisphere. Uh, and we've got to do better than that. We have got to get uh, something in the region that is a very uh, specific uh, promulgating uh, democracies and how democracies deliver for people. Uh, military side of the house, again, we're doing a lot of things to pressurize the system. Our uh, foreign military sales, foreign military financing, excess defense articles, speeding that process up, working very closely with uh, not just Department of Defense and the, the services, uh, and we have uh, FMS cases with all the services, predominantly Army though, I would say two-thirds of the cases, uh, but then also within the interagency, because there's a lot involved, uh, you know, because they, we want to make sure that the equipment that we give militarily is used for the right reasons, and it continues to be used, right, for the right reasons. All of this uh, with the respect for human rights, the rule of law, professionalization of the militaries, which is what we bring to the table as the U.S. military, and then economics. So been working very, very hard on the economic side of the house. U.S. companies, what are their barriers to outcompete? I've talked to Secretary Blinken in May at the City Summit of the Americas. I've traveled with Secretary Raimondo uh, to Panama uh, a couple of months ago. Uh, we have over 150 com U.S. companies in Panama. We have over 200 companies, uh, U.S. companies, in Honduras, for example. Uh, we need to raise the profile and the branding of Team USA for our companies. 
what do you get with a U.S. company? You get transparency. You, get, uh, you don't get cost overruns and design flaws and things like that. You, get, you know what you're getting with, with a U.S. company. They hire local workers. They invest in the community. They usually adopt schools, participate with hospitals. They become part of the community, right? So bringing all of these things together, how can we do that better for Team USA as part of Team Democracy in this hemisphere? You and I talked about in December, and you referenced earlier with the rope, that you know, if you're a, a leader that has a four year, one four-year term and, and you're wrestling maybe with poverty in some places and you're eager to deliver for your people, that's all good. But you put out a tender and there's only uh, PRC entities bidding on those tenders. You know, you, you, newsflash, you know, <laughs> we know who's going to win the tender. And, and, and I, I asked you directly in December, you know, uh, are Americans there to compete? And you basically, I don't want to put words in your mouth, you said in many cases, no. Uh, so I, I, I um, what's the problem? I mean, right. uh, what's the problem? Why don't we have America? We're proud of our economy. We're proud of our, our free market. Right. Why aren't there more American companies down there? And are, are we taking steps to fix that? Because we've been talking about this for a while. Are right. we seeing progress? So we're, uh, we are taking steps to, steps to fix that uh, as part of Team USA. And, uh, and again, uh, the, as uh, Secretary Raimondo said, economic security is national security. Said that while we were on our trip in, uh, in Panama. Panama and Costa Rica were uh, just identified, and this was the day before our trip to Panama, uh, as two of seven countries uh, that will partner with the United States on semiconductor supply chain. So they're emerging leaders in the region in tech, supply chains. So how do we help enforce that? Again, back to feed and fuel the world, uh, tech, you know, how are we bringing that into the hemisphere? Uh, the, and how are we making sure that Team USA isn't blocking our own field goals, right? I've mentioned a couple things already. I've been to the Inter-American Development Bank uh, to partner with them, tell them about what I see in the hemisphere. How can we work better together? Um, are you able to reach the U.S. companies that are in these countries that when there are projects from the IADB, you know, that they can get a hold of these companies to participate in the tenders and, and actually compete? Are we actually, are all these U.S. companies, are they aware and are they competing? How do we get them to compete? Uh, been to the Developmental Finance Corporation uh, to talk with uh, the CEO there. And they have projects. Uh, they get in individual uh, investors to do projects in the hemisphere. And, and between the IADB and the DFC, these are big money projects. This is what the, uh, these countries need. And so how do, we, how do we facilitate that? DFC is global, though. It's not just you know, the, the Western Hemisphere, right. right? So how do we make it attractive there? They have uh, what's called political risk insurance uh, at the DFC, right? So when you have concerns about insecurity and instability in the countries, you know, it might not look so lucrative as a, as a business uh, is looking at the landscape of the countries. So um, that offers, I think that's huge, uh, but we have to turn the corner on this balance of insecurity and instability uh, or feed and fuel the world, mm -hmm. right? How do we get over this hump? How do we go this direction uh, and to be able to get, uh, realize that potential versus yep. just continue to wallow in the, in the insecurity and instability that is, that is really plaguing a lot of the countries? If you just take a regular migration, right? Irregular migration is off the charts. We see it. Families are on the move. 
make no mistake, they're on the move in the hemisphere, yeah. and it is only projected to get uh, increase. So it, Can I it's, ask you about that? That's, yes, if absolutely. I may, that's one thing I wanted to, I was planning for later, but I'll go to it now because you raised it. You know, I, I think it's fair to say, and certainly not a partisan statement to say that, you know, we're confronting a real migration crisis on our southern border. A, a large portion of migrants trying to cross our southern border are coming from your area of responsibility. Uh, I, I saw that New York City Mayor Eric Adams had visited Mexico, Ecuador, and Colombia recently. Um, just very briefly, what is the core cause of the mass migration that we're seeing from your area? I, I remember years ago in the Senate talking about you know, these issues, and it, 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 I, that's kind of my theme here. It's like, gosh darn, we've been talking about a lot of this for a long time. You know, uh, how can, what are the causes of migration? How can we address issues there so folks can stay at home and not risk the dangerous journey to our country? Right, so the uh, seven million migrants out of, uh, have poured out of Venezuela so far a terrible humanitarian crisis that continues and is ongoing as we speak. And, uh, and then having just been to the, uh, to the Darien uh, on the Panama side and on the Colombian side and uh, working with our military and secu public security forces. So uh, Colombia has obviously a military, Panama has public security forces, border forces. Working with both of those countries as part of the trilateral agreement that the United States signed with uh, Colombia and Panama back in April, prior to the expiration of Title 42 in May, and uh, and and trying to work the three pillars to this: a security pillar, uh, legal pathways pillar. So uh, it was uh, uh, um, Administrator Power had made the comment: we have to get the strategic messaging out there. Everybody knows how to get a hold of a smuggler. Uh, to illegally uh, make a journey through the Darien, a very dangerous jungle, but nobody seems to know how to get to legally, how to get, uh, you know, get to the United States. And so that's the, uh, that's the other pa uh, pillar is the legal pathways, and the third pillar is development. And so um, since April, the, the military and public security forces have been conducting operations against the criminals. Uh, that are, but again, I talk about the transnational criminal organizations, they're not just trafficking people, and that's become very, uh, 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 very fruitful in terms of uh, resources, but uh, drug trafficking, in some cases the, mi the uh, migration, uh, the migrants carry drugs for the cartels, uh, they're able to go after them, but what, uh, I think what's a really important point is that a lot of these countries don't have laws and authorities for uh, the military and the public security forces to reduce the flow of migration or stop it. They'll go after the, the uh, countering the human trafficking, but their job isn't to stop or reduce the flow of migration. And so it starts with the, with the laws of the countries. Uh, some of them have TPS agreements where they allow migrants to stay in their own country and assimilate and have programs. But as I mentioned at the beginning of this, they're already reeling from COVID and the economic impacts of that. Then you add on seven million into the hemisphere uh, from Venezuela. And at the top of our list going through the Darien are Venezuelans. Mm. I've been to the migrant shelters there on both Colombia and the Panama side uh, and their families, little kids, babies with their parents that are making this treacherous journey. Families are on the move, insecurity, instability, uh, climate change, drought, can't get food, 
can't get health care, it's not safe, uh, and they, they have their eye on the American dream. They either have family that's already in the States, uh, and, and then the strategic, I go back to strategic messaging. You know, that if you just look at the strategic messaging, you can, you can Google uh, what folks are saying. It was well worth the journey because, you know, we have our, uh, we have the American dream. We want to be there. We want to be safe. We want to have food. We want to take care of our kids. We want to drive a car. We want to have a house. And we want to be safe. And they, they say it's well worth the journey. Um, we've got to do better than that. It can't just be the American dream. It has to be the Americas, the Western Hemisphere dream. How do we do that? That's a big, tall order. Yeah, yeah. But I'll tell you, democracies can deliver for people, absolutely. But how do we bring all of our instruments of national power? How do we work stronger together? How do we make sure that we're not blocking our own field goals? Yeah. We can do this. Yeah, yeah. And we are doing this. We just got we to gotta ramp it up. We got to step up outside the Department of Defense. It's right? a call to action. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's yeah. it's it's part of what Team yeah. USA yeah. does. Sure. I think just by virtue of the fact that I can, I meet with leaders all the time. That's my uh, you know the what Southcom does. What we bring to the table, we're able to do that. There are other things that are happening in the globe that take our time and attention from from some uh, you know from yeah. our senior leaders, yeah. right? Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm talking to all of you because we can do this. Yeah. This is, and we are doing it. We just got to do better. And it's a call to action. Thank you. I want to go to, we have a distinguished audience here of congressional staff and reporters and, and folks from embassies. So I want to go to questions here in about five minutes or so. Uh, just maybe a, a few last quick lightning round questions, if I may, uh, General. Uh, on Cuba, the Wall Street Journal reported on June 20th that China and Cuba are negotiating to establish a new joint military training facility on the island, sparking concern uh, that uh, in terms of Chinese troops potentially and other security and intelligence operations just 100 miles off Florida's coast. That's not too far from your headquarters in Miami. Uh, speaking of, uh, being, uh, is there proximity that, matters? Proximity matters. Yeah. So, um, did that news in June surprise you? And can you provide any update on what China is doing in Cuba? So we continue to watch uh, the PRC very closely uh, with everything that is going on in the hemisphere, everything that, uh, uh, you know, less than an hour flight from, uh, from Miami. As I said, proximity matters. I can fly to 80% of this AOR in three to four hours. I, I, I think we've forgotten that, quite honestly, how quickly that we can fly there, how close everything is. Uh, and we're watching that very closely. Uh, but the, um, and it's, you know, how do we, uh, we've had several things. It's not just what the PRC is doing. You know, it's what Russia is doing in the hemisphere with the Minister of Foreign Affairs uh, trip to the region in the spring, uh, going to Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela, but then also to Brazil uh, for, uh, for meetings. Uh, the Iranian president coming to the hemisphere uh, in June and Hezbollah visiting. Hezbollah activities. In the Hezbollah East. activities, obviously, are concerned in the diaspora that's in Latin America, uh, making the, the rounds at Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela. Um, we, have, uh, we had the Iranian warships that were making the global tour. They came into the hemisphere from the Pacific. Uh, and uh, tried to do port calls at numerous cities, um, and those were denied, and they, uh, the frigate ended up doing a port call in Rio. Uh, we've had a Russian warship in the region and in the hemisphere. 
So we're seeing a trend up of hardware that is uh, coming into the region as well from our strategic competitors. And again, it's, uh, it's very concerning because I think that the, uh, the region is, um, with the insecurity and instability, that we can do better in this vulnerable time yeah. uh, to, to keep out strategic competitors that have malign intentions. The, um, as you, you know better than me, but I know from my background a little bit, you know, if, you, if you're, you can't see a problem, if you're not aware of it, you can't address it. And that makes me think of ISR, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. You testified in open session in March that Southcom gets about 2% of the Department of Defense's ISR and that that meets only about 17% of your requirements for ISR, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance. Are those numbers still accurate? Yeah, they're still about accurate, of course. Uh, yeah. Right. And again, we're not, you know, the, the Southcom is not, there, there are yeah. no, I get things it. taking the, the resources and there's a finite yeah. amount of resources. No, so. I, I, I get it. And <laughs> I would, I, I have argued that, you know, Indo-Pacific is a priority and we have important interests in UCOM and, and CENTCOM and, and the essence of strategy is coordinating ends and means and making tough decisions and allocating finite resources and mitigating right. risk. I get it. Right. That's the essence of strategy. <laughs> but it's also important, I think, for Americans and the representatives in Congress to understand um, uh, how we could better protect our interests with just a little bit more, and that's where I'd love to go now. In your response to Senator King in March, you said, quote, we believe that we're, we are getting after about 10% of what we know is the known flow of narcotics flow. So I just want to be clear, uh, for we have members of con uh, st congressional staff here and, and others listening in. Are you essentially saying that out of every 10 drug shipments you can see, we only have the means to interdict one? So nine of 10 are getting through that we see? So in terms of the resources that I get uh, for, um, for Southcom and uh, for counter-narcotics, we do the detection, detection and monitoring mission, <clears throat> and then uh, hand that uh, information over to law enforcement uh, or to the uh, Coast Guard for the finish. And, um, and with the resources we have, we utilize those very, very specifically and uh, to the best of our ability, which is the most that we can get out of that. Uh, can, we, uh, can we do more if we had additional resources? Yes, we, can do mo we could do more. Um, but yes, about uh, we anticipate and uh, the analysis that we've done is uh, we get after, we're able to get after with the resources we have about 10% of what we know is the uh, cocaine flow, which is the problem, the issue I have in the in the hemisphere, not fentanyl yet. I I, I, I give a caveat there because that can change, uh, but uh, with the known drug flow, so uh, cocaine and and marijuana. So just a few more interdiction assets could make, could make a big difference. But I would say with the you know to go back to your point about ISR, Brad, yeah. is the. Um, so we look for innovative ways. I advertise this region uh, as a testbed of innovation, a laboratory testbed for uh, the services to utilize. We have an exercise that my Navy component, I have a component from every one of the services, including Special Operations Command South, so SOC South. I have three joint, uh, joint task forces. I have GIAD of South, Joint Interagency Task Force South, which does the detection and monitoring. Uh, for illicit uh, drug activity coming to the United States. That's based out of Key West, uh, Florida. I have JTF Guantanamo Bay. Uh, I still have the law of war detainees that I'm responsible for. 
uh, and also uh, JTF Bravo, Joint Task Force Bravo, and Sotokana Honduras. And so with those, and those are just headquarters. We don't get a lot of assigned and allocated forces, so I advertise, you know, what services bring. They've got a lot of testing we, they, they need to do, always looking for uh, ways to innovate technology. I was here uh, speaking yesterday at the Army's convention, AUSA, bringing the joint flavor to the joint force, right, to the Army's convention. We will also go to the Air Force convention, but again, to get the word out. Again, my Navy component is conducting a, an exercise where we're layering in 20 different uh, technologies, new technologies that they're going to test for the vendors as part of this flex week uh, that we're doing. Uh, Secretary of the Navy has taken Task Force 59, which is an unmanned hybrid fleet uh, out in uh, the Middle East, and replicated that now uh, in the hemisphere, helping with domain awareness. That's what we all struggle with, right, is this vast area. When you take the Caribbean, Central America, and South America, it's huge in all the waters, right? If I just talk about illegal, unregulated, unreported fishing, on any given day, and there are many countries that, that uh, participate in that, but the, the predominant uh, violator of that is the PRC. I will have anywhere from 250 to 642, which was the high, deep water fishing vessels raiding the fish in my AOR. They hang out on the other side, on the other China. side of the EEZs yeah. for the countries. Yeah. They follow the fishing migration patterns. Yeah. Right? And then they'll turn the tracking system off, the AIS, and go inside of the EEZs and raid, continue to raid the fish. And these are big vessels. These aren't little fishing boats. New York Times did an article on the, the PRC's deepwater deep fishing fleet. You can see the big pictures of these big vessels in the region, but that's just one of many examples. Well, thank you. Um, I wish we had more time, but I would have loved to talk about uh, Chinese arms sales in the region, uh, how a lot of uh, folks in, in the region are sending uh, uh, military folks and civilians to China for training, and then also PRC right. safe cities, but we'll have to save those for another day. So let's go to questions. If, uh, please wait for the microphone, and please identify yourself and ask a question in the form of a question, if you wouldn't mind. Right here, please. Uh, thank you. Uh, General, I'm Dmitry Sevastopilo, the U.S.-China uh, correspondent at the Financial Times. You, you said about the space station in Argentina that China doesn't have daily access. Can you explain a little bit more what do they have access to, how are they working with the Argentinians, and how important... Not, not China. Argentina doesn't have daily Argentina access. Argentina doesn't. Oh, Argentina. Daily, yeah. Argentina. Okay. The country hosting it doesn't know necessarily what's what? going on there. Right. Sorry, <laughs> That's my the point. Yeah, can yeah. You talk they can make an appointment and, and, <laughs> and go through. Shuffle all the papers, put them away before but, they show up. Yeah, um, yeah. <clears throat> but can you talk a little bit more about what they're actually doing right now, and how important is that facility for their hypersonic program? So I would say the, you know, again, I go back to what I said originally uh, three deep uh, deep space stations that the Chinese have two in mainland China and one in Argentina so uh, when we talk about uh, telemetry the TTNC sites the SOSI sites being able to track their own satellites but then also being able to track everybody else's satellites and the concern for the targeting of that and then what that eventually leads to yeah, I mean, the first step uh, to destroying a satellite is being able to detect and track, mm -hmm. right? I mean, so it doesn't, we don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand why they might want to track satellites. Yeah. Uh, Thank you for the question. 
Good morning, General. Uh, Justin Katz with Breaking Defense. Uh, yesterday during AUSA, one of your uh, officers during the Warriors Corner briefly discussed that Southcom was considering uh, a heavy airlift unit, kind of loosely based off uh, a multinational one in UCOM. I was wondering if you could discuss a little bit of what's driving uh, the need for heavy airlift in your AOR right now. Uh, and and why, I mean, heavy airlift is always useful, obviously, but why right now? Well, thank you for the question. Thanks for being there yesterday. Um, I'm really excited about this. So the, the overall program is called the Theater Maintenance Partnership Initiative. And so as we, uh, you know, the going back to being responsible and accountable that we, through our foreign military sales program, FMF, um, EDA, Excess Defense Articles, and then when they go to countries, making sure that they're being used for the purposes that they were intended, because we have a very rigorous process on Team USA's side of the house. And uh, that, that, that equipment, and that is tracked very closely by us, by uh, Congress, and so we want to always make sure. But to get back to that, maintenance is hard. So it's not an airlift wing. We have, uh, uh, let me ask you this question. How many C-130s in the hemisphere do we have by our partner nations? We've got over 50. And so if we can bring them up to a NATO standard, right, have the maintenance, uh, the certifications that meet the NATO standard, and then being able to have airlift. We had some countries, for example, the Haiti earthquake a couple of years ago in 2021. There were some countries that were, uh, wanted to participate in that recovery effort, but couldn't get there. Mm. And we weren't able to fly them from Team USA, but they had forces on the ground. They were ready. They had the equipment. They were ready to go, and they couldn't get there. But in an airlift wing, right? If we pooled together our resources, none of us have the resources together, but again, I go back to team democracy. This fits right in line with, you know, how do we not just have individual countries doing internal things, but how do you, how do you bring that forward for the, uh, for the betterment of the hemisphere and partner nations working together? So the Theater Maintenance Partnership Initiative, um, it will have nine centers of excellence we will go through the centers of um, education that are already established in some of our countries. Uh, and we started with the first three, two in Colombia, one in Jamaica. And we go to, for example, in Jamaica's military academy, and we propose this to them. I mean, they don't, uh, you know, if they want to do it and be a part of it. And then they can train and export that capability to the other uh, countries in the region. Colombia, for example, I'm a helicopter pilot. When I went to flight school at Fort Rucker, Alabama, uh, the uh, Spanish-speaking uh, countries came to Fort Rucker for flight school. So some of them were in my class. Now, as of 2019, Colombia took that over, the Spanish-speaking flight school. They teach it uh, in Colombia. So we have very capable militaries, Colombia, Brazil, Chile, very capable. Uh, but how would we help them with maintenance? Maintenance is hard for the U.S. military. It really is. And so if it's hard for us, I know it's hard for everybody else. Uh, being a helicopter pilot, uh, I know what it means to keep all your aircraft when you're in combat. You want as many that can fly in the air and not broke on the ground. So how do we help uh, in inculcate that, that uh, culture from the tactical level of operator maintenance all the way to how, uh, logistics and sustainment, which is really hard. But uh, it's the supply chain, right? How do you run that in your militaries and public security forces? That's hard. 
And so that's what we're getting after uh, in the hemisphere. And I was just talking to Honorable Lohman, Chris Lohman, uh, yesterday, who is the SecDuff's advisor for logistics. And we had talked about this last year, uh, about this idea. We've been working on it a year and a half in Southcom. We went and pitched it in the Pentagon, briefed over 20 different offices and stakeholders. We were able to get some seed money, and now we're implementing it. It's a seven-year program. Uh, it's seven years only because we haven't thought of what's next, because we want to see how this goes. And the countries are excited about this, really excited. It'll touch on uh, aviation maintenance, uh, radio maintenance, vehicles, um, all of it. And I think it can really, really help in the, in the, in the hemisphere with our countries. That's exciting. Great question, Justin. Thank you. And it reminds me of foreign military sales. <clears throat> I would argue one of the great advantages of U.S. foreign military sales, it's not just like a Russian style, hey, we're going to give you something and you know, adios, right. we're gone. Right. We're, we're going to be there for decades to come mm -hmm. with the logistics maintenance and sustainment. So that's flying not yep. just today, but it's flying mm -hmm. 10 years from now. And that's, <laughs> that's something I think it's, it might take a little long to right. get the American weapon. And it might, it might be a little bit more expensive. But uh, if you go no, get but the foreign you military got the sales, supply chain, you exactly. got the parts. Yeah. Uh, and now you'll have the, the education. Other question right here. Yes. General, thank you very much for doing this. Jeff Selden from VOA. I was wondering, you mentioned the migration crisis. To what extent are, are the migrants coming not just from South America, but are pouring in from other countries, from other parts of the world, into South America to get to the U.S.? And if you can, where, where are those places that they're coming from? And also, with the concerns about what's going on right now in the Middle East, Israel at war with Hamas after the terror attacks, what are you seeing in this hemisphere from Iranian contacts, Iranian proxies, Hezbollah in the region? Right, so obviously uh, very, very, uh, watching very, very closely. Uh, and the, um, in terms of the uh, working with our partner nations, obviously they're concerned too. And they're watching very closely. I would say that, you know, just this, uh, our, our team democracy network is very, very much alive and well, and working with each other, sharing of information. Uh, again, we go back and forth on the, or we, you know, talk about the lack of ISR, but we, we focus a lot on not just trying to continue to get ISR and complain about not having what we need or we need more, but looking for non-traditional ways of uh, getting ISR and how do we get information, how we uh, utilize AI and ML. And we have a couple of programs that we do that with unclassified information, open source information that's out there, but using AI and ML to uh, put that all together to help us uh, understand better what's happening in the hemisphere. And then also being able to share information through our sharing agreements that we have with our partner nations of what's happening in the hemisphere. So we're watching very closely. And, uh, and um, but in, ter in terms of indicators and things like that right now as a result, immediate result of the attacks that have taken place, I think we've seen the condemnations that have, that have come from the region uh, regarding the attacks. And uh, we will continue to be very poised and, uh, and watching the environment very, very closely. It's a great question, Jeff. Thank you. With you know, given uh, Hezbollah's activity in the region, uh, you know, the uh, our, I would just you don't have to respond, General, if you don't want to. But not being able to secure our southern border not only has implications for drugs and and other things, but you could imagine those same networks could be used by terrorist organizations to infiltrate people into our country who wish us ill. So this is a this isn't just a drug issue. This I would say it's a national security issue myself. Okay, other questions. Uh, 
Yes, thank you, General, for being here. I'm Michael Martino with Reuters. I wanted to ask uh, again about the Panama Canal situation. In, in the context that, you know, Panama has sovereignty over, over the canal, what does the operation by Chinese companies, Chinese state-owned companies, of the ports on those canals, from your perspective, strategically allow or could allow, you know, China to do in the event of a crisis? What, maybe you could spell that out for us. What is the threat there? Yeah, so the, just in, in terms of just going, re-rolling uh, the tape back a few years uh, in terms of um, the, the countries in the region, we have, as I mentioned before, 22 of 31 uh, that have signed on to the Belt and Road Initiative. Panama signed on, and in 2017 uh, signed 47 bilateral agreements with the Chinese. But I would say this, uh, in terms of the, the work that we have been able to do, I'll, I'll go back, oh, by the way, I'll go back to our instruments of national power, not having our number one diplomat in the seat for five years in Panama, uh, put Team USA behind the power curve as well. And so, again, I can't stress, our number one diplomat makes a difference. That's our ground game. The leader of our ground game for Team Democracy and Team USA is our number one diplomat in the seat. Uh, ambassador Mary Carmen Aponte is in there as the ambassador. She got there uh, end of November last year, and uh, she has made uh, uh, she's covered a lot of great ground, but we lost some. But the current administration that we're working very closely with, we have a very good relationship. Uh, probably 50% of the projects that were planned and or started on both sides of the Panama Canal and on both ends uh, have been uh, halted, either due to cost overruns, design flaws, those sorts of things. But there are still five state-owned enterprises from the PRC that are along each side of the canal. And that is a concern for the Panama Canal Authority. And how do they maintain uh, being independent and not uh, uh, being concerned about cyber intrusion, being concerned about a lot of different things for the canal. And so uh, they have a board of directors and they watch that very closely. They uh, um, work that very closely. That is a very important for the global economy uh, for the Panama Canal. And uh, so it's a very, it's all about relationships at the end of the day and how we work with our, with our countries. And, and again, I go back to uh, the significance of, of Panama and, uh, and all of the state-owned enterprises. And you know my concern in terms of the being able to use it for dual use, for military application uh, very quickly. And that's what my concern is. So okay. we have to work. We have to, you know, work with uh, very closely with our partner nations and with the leaders, and um, through questions? our instruments and national power. Didi yeah. uh, Tong with the Associated Press. Um, I have a question regarding the economics part. You know, it's part of the dime, right? It's mm -hmm. the last one, but still, it's there. And then the U.S. cannot do this alone. And you know, you're talking about those projects, and you're talking about rope. You know. It, you know, they're not looking at who is throwing the rope. But anyway, in, on some of the projects, you know, China probably can be very competitive. And then they, the Chinese, they say, will come in to help with the local economy. Well, my question is, like, do you see any benefits of China's, this, those kind of economic activities, you know, in the area? And you were talking about, you know, migration, you know, you want to stabilize the economy, to grow the economy. Well, that actually, you know, you see some benefits, you know, for the China to be there to help with the local economy. Or even, you know, do you see any kind of room even for the Americans, you know, to the, um, for the U.S. to work with China, right, on some economic issues there? 
for the better some kind of outcome. Right. So I'm, I'm actually going to thank you for the question. Uh, the, I'm going to participate in the American Chamber of Commerce um, uh, conference that's happening on the, the week of the 23rd and 24th. And so myself and Secretary Armando are going to, to speak at that event and talk to our uh, US companies uh, about the importance of investing in the hemisphere. And, uh, and then, you know, when we were in Panama, we met with uh, several companies uh, for, uh, for a meeting that were there and talked about their barriers to outcompete or what their challenges were. And so just bringing that time and attention, I'm also speaking to uh, the Corps of Engineers. So, you know, in Southcom, we, as part of Team Democracy, it's like scanning the whole area. Who can be part of Team Democracy? You want to be on Team Democracy, you're welcome to join. And what do you bring to the table? For example, 5G. 5G is another critical infrastructure. 24 countries in this hemisphere have 3G and 4G PRC uh, technology. And then they get offered almost a zero, uh, zero cost upgrade to 5G. Maybe even a deep discount on that upgrade, I would imagine. Or a deep discount, yeah. which is, so how do you, you know, I had one president, General Richardson, how, what do I tell my people? I'm getting offered almost a zero cost upgrade to 5G from PRC. What do I tell them that you want me to, to choose another company, right, that, that is not the Chinese, and I'm going to have to pay for all of this infrastructure? And then I go down the list, right, of what, the, what our companies, and, and it's not any US companies for the 5G, right? It's Nokia, it's Ericsson, it's Samsung. They're Western solutions, but part of Team Democracy solutions, right? So um, advertising, again, it's Team Democracy. What can we bring to this hemisphere? How can we raise the profile of, of US companies, of international companies? Because we all have standards. We all respect the rule of law, human rights. We don't have cost overruns. We don't have design flaws. We have proven uh, what U.S. businesses and Western businesses bring to the table. How do we upgun up that, that profile? So the leaders in the hemisphere see the investment that's happening. They don't see it. We don't talk about it. They don't see it. We got to talk about it more. And that's why I'm here talking to all of you today. Uh, because I think that we can do, it, we can do better. It, it's a call to action. And there's a lot of things going on in the hemisphere. It's just not being brought together to where leaders in the region can see it and our strategic competitors can see it. Thank you. Last question for me and then we need to wrap up, but just a quick 30 second one if I may. I, I'd feel remiss if I, uh, I didn't uh, ask it. What would be the negative impacts of a long-term continuing resolution on your command and its ability to conduct its mission if, if Congress doesn't pass uh, an appropriation, new appropriation? It's just the, um, there's a whole host of things that we've got to, it, it's predictability. Yeah. I, again, I go back to blocking our own fill goals yeah. and, uh, and economic security is national security. And as we work with, you know, uh, uh, in terms of just Department of Defense and as I, I tell the services, use Southcom AOR, we can plow the ground, you know, and work on things and give you feedback, put it into our real world exercises, our real world missions. Uh, close to the homeland, you don't have to go far away. Uh, you know, folks are watching very closely in UCOM, AOR, Indo-PACOM. We can do that here in our AOR, very close to the homeland at a, at a cheaper cost, I would think. 
But just in terms of um, a long-term CR, you, you can't have new starts. Right. You can't start anything new. You get, uh, you get your dropper feed of funding um, as you go. You don't get your budget. Uh, we've got to be able to pass a budget. And I would say also for, uh, for the holds uh, that are currently on, uh, on the military or military holds, it's impacting readiness. It's causing unpredictability. We need leaders at Echelon in the right place where they're supposed to be. Uh, and not blocking our own field goals again, which is what, what, what we're doing. We so could do better than so that. So there's three congressional two items. Confirm ambassadors, pass an appropriations, and, and stop uh, holding the U.S. military uh, accountable for policies they don't control. Uh, in an, what I would call as someone who worked in the Senate for nine years, an unprecedented hold that is a self-inflicted wound on our military readiness. All right, well, with that uh, unsolicited comment, let me just say uh, thank you, uh, General, so much for being you, here. Brad. I really enjoyed our conversation. Um, I learned a ton, and I just want to thank you uh, personally for your service to our country over many decades, you and your family. I want to thank the men and women that you lead. I can't think of a better person to be in this job right now. I know it comes a great sacrifice, and, um, and I want you to know that you have friends here at FTD that want you to have everything you need to fulfill your Well, thank you. I'm honored to be in this job, and thank you so much for your service and your continued service. Thank you, thank you so you, Brad. much. Thank you. For more information on FDD and the latest analysis on these issues, we encourage you to visit fdd.org. We also welcome you to uh, look at our Center on Military and Political Power. Thank you so much for being here in person and for tuning in online. Uh, we look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you.